Amen. Well, hey, glad you're here tonight. If you've got a Bible with you, uh, go ahead and open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians 6, that's in the New Testament. Uh, it's one of the first letters of the New Testament. So go ahead and head over to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Um, before we get in, a few things I want to make you aware of. The first is, I, I know some of you are, are new or newer to us. And so if you are, my, my name is Brian Howard. I'm the teaching pastor here at Calvary. Thrilled you're with us tonight. Uh, if you're watching online and you can't join us yet, or you're just not comfortable joining us yet, I want you to know we still remember you you, we see you, we think about you, we're praying for you, and most importantly, we're longing for that day where you are able to join us back here on campus. So I uh, want to get that out of the way. Uh, a few other things, um, just as we kind of set up the night and introduce things. I um, want to talk to you. This is so funny. This is so specific. I'm sure this will make it into the podcast and someone will enjoy this. Um, if you drive a blue Camry... <laughs> License plate 5HCK165. Um, your car has its keys in it and it's running right now. So I, I, and there's like a lot of shame here because if someone gets up and goes and leaves, we'll know it's you. But uh, maybe if you secretly slip out, um, you were so excited to be at church tonight that you didn't even turn your car off. And so we would like you to have your car off so someone doesn't, you know, steal it. Um, so, or I, I don't know, run out of gas. So anyway, uh, if you have that camera, Camry, you can go ahead and take care of that. All right, a few other things. Uh, that we'll take care of tonight. Um, I do want to give you an update. And the update has to do um, not with our sermon series, which we'll jump into in a minute, uh, and not even necessarily young adults to be specific, this Thursday night gathering, uh, but with where Calvary is at as a whole. And so obviously we, we are part of Calvary Community Church, and uh, we love our church and we adore our church um, for, for so many reasons. Um, but right now, um, Calvary kind of is navigating, like every church, um, all of the decisions we have to make when it comes to COVID-19, when it comes to the restrictions put on churches, and when it comes to what our posture is going to be toward local, state, and federal government decisions. And so um, I want to give you an update on that. I, I want to talk to you a little bit about where our church is, where we stand, where we're going. I want to help you understand that well. Uh, if you've been watching the news at all, if you've been kind of just aware of anything happening in our region, in our world, um, there's been a lot of discussion about this. And so I want to try to set it up this way. There are four different ways Four different options churches have been taking as it relates to government restrictions related to COVID-19. I want to lay those out for you uh, and then tell you where Calvary's at. So the first is I would call comply and cancel. And so there are a number of churches, um, some nationally very famous churches, that have decided because of COVID-19, we are not going to gather for worship until at least January 2021. So their decision is, we are not going to gather. It is not safe. We do not believe it's right. We are not going to gather in any way, shape, or form on our campus. That's the first choice, comply and cancel. The second is comply and gather. And so these are churches that have decided we're going to comply with what the government says, with masks and social distancing and all the different things, but we're going to gather in every way we can. The third option that we've seen some churches take is the option uh, of that we're going to defy the government and we're going to gather, but we're going to have some modifications. So the government says we need to be outside, we're going to do inside, but we're still going to do mass and distancing. Or we're going to do outside, but we're not doing mass, and now we're not doing distancing. And then the fourth option, and we've seen churches take this route, is that we are going to defy, we're going to gather, and we're going to have no restrictions, no adjustments. We're not doing anything different, we're doing business as usual. And here's what I need you to know, I need you to hear this so clearly tonight. All four of these options are options 
we as a church can and would seriously consider given the circumstances. That there's no like easy option here. It's not like, oh, well, there's an obvious answer that any thinking person would do. We understand that different churches have made different decisions and are going in different directions here, but I want you to be so clear tonight on which of these four options Calvary has decided to chart forward with. And right now that is gonna be option number two, that we are going to comply and we are going to gather. We are going to find ways to gather, which you're doing tonight. You're here on campus, and yet we are complying. We're doing social distancing. We're outside. Uh, we're not inside. We're wearing masks. This is us complying and gathering and doing everything possible to still gather as a church uh, and yet not walk in defiance of the laws of the land. And so that is what we've decided that's not what we've decided forever. It's what we've decided for now. There may come something along the way that makes us change our mind. And if you're interested in why we've made that decision or what would make us move off of our position, uh, I want to invite you. You're not going to hear that tonight. I want to invite you to go to the front page of Calvary's website. And on the front page of Calvary's website, you will see a discussion that Pastor Sean Thornton, our senior pastor, and I had right on this stage on Saturday night. It's about 45 minutes long, uh, where we discuss where our church stands, why we stand biblically, and what would, what, what, what would it take for us to change our position. So if you're curious about where we're at, if you're curious about why we're meeting outside with mass and distancing, if you're curious about where we stand in relation to other churches, I, I invite you to watch that video. And then if you have questions after that, if you have things you want to talk about, you're welcome to talk to myself, you're welcome to talk to Pastor Brian Williams, um, Sarah Serwinski, you're welcome to talk to anyone here uh, about your questions, and we would receive those. Here's my only request. If you've got questions, if you've got comments, watch the video first. Don't come to me and tell me how angry you are about something if you haven't watched the video. Watch the video, try to understand where we're going through, uh, and then you'll know where Calvary's at as a whole, and in every way, Young Adults is going to follow where Calvary's at. Does that make sense? All right, right on. Let me pray for us. And I want to pray for us. I want to pray for churches all around the world. I want to just pray as we navigate through this pandemic, what we're going to do. Uh, and then we're going to jump into the text in 1 Corinthians 6 tonight. So Father in heaven, thank you for tonight. Thanks for life and breath. Thanks for the opportunity to gather. Um, God, help us walk in wisdom as a church. Help us walk in wisdom as a people. Uh, as we try to worship you, gather together, and yet keep our neighbors safe. God, I pray against anyone getting sick here. I pray against anyone contracting illness here. I pray against anyone spreading anything here that would cause harm. God, I pray for other churches. Pray for their elder boards, their leaders, their pastors. Pray they would make wise decisions. I pray they would make decisions that honor you, that are best for their people. Help them serve their people. Help them love their community and love their neighbor. In every way, God, help us as churches navigate this pandemic well. We pray in Jesus' name and all God's people said, Amen. Right on. So that's where we're at. Again, invite you to watch that video um, if you would like to know a little bit more about why we've reached the conclusion we've reached. So again, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and we'll jump back into a series, a teaching series we started a couple weeks ago um, called Rhythm or Ruin. And what we're really trying to look at is, is, is how can you live in such a way where your life doesn't head down the path of destruction and ruin, but rather down the, the, the pathway of God's harmony and his goodness, the rhythm that God has for our lives. And to introduce tonight's subject, kind of where we're going tonight, I actually want to begin with a question. And that question is a simple one, and I want you to just think about it. I want you to think about what your answer to this question might be. Here's the question. What do we do when the world begins to fall apart? Here's the question. What would you do when the world begins to fall apart? And this is a question that, that really you could actually be thinking about right now. 
Because back in March, it really seemed like the world was falling apart. And in various moments since March, it's really continued to seem like the world is falling apart. A global pandemic and the economy crashing and unrest all over our nation and all over the world. All of these things coming together. Here's the question. What do we do when the world begins to fall apart? And here's what I'm interested in tonight. I'm interested in the actual answer to that question, not what you and I think the answer to that question should be. Because I think if I asked you, if you knew you were going to die tomorrow, what would you do? You would have a list for me, and that would be a very noble and a very good list. But here's the actual evidence. I don't know if you realize this, but this week we're going to hit the five-month mark since Governor Newsom announced like the stay-at-home order. So for me, like the, like coronavirus, COVID-19 all began before that, but really like stay-at-home was like, oh, this is for real, okay? Five-month mark. At the five-month mark, here's what we've learned. So I went and did some research this week. Here is what we as Americans have done. So this is unique to the American scene, but it's probably representative of all of us. Here's what, here, is, oh, uh, here is what we've done. Um, cable news viewing, which is always known for good mental health. Cable news viewing is up 179%. Twitter, which is a cesspool of destruction, is up 20%. Facebook, which used to be a delightful place to look at pictures of your kids and grandkids, but no longer is up 50%. Netflix added 15 million subscribers in the month of April, 15 million. Internet pornography is up 20%. Alcohol purchases are up 243%. Recent surveys showed that 75% of people surveys, adults in America, have gained weight over the course of the pandemic because of excessive boredom snacking. This is actually becoming a thing. And, and of course, here's what we know as well. Like Amazon.com. Raise your hand if sometime during the pandemic you have bought something off Amazon.com. Okay, right, right. Do you know that they have doubled their profits in the last five months? Like this is insane. And, and here's the thing. I'm tempted to look at this list and go like, that's crazy, all of these different shifts that are happening. But then I realized, okay, that's exactly it. Like every Sunday, if you have an iPhone, you get the little notification. Maybe it's Sunday for me, but not for you. That tells you your screen time for the week. And don't you cringe a little? And then don't you rejoice a little when it's like, you're down 10% to eight hours a day. You're like, yay! And I realized I've been doing this. And I realized like how much this has actually been impacting me as well. Like the changes that have been going on in my life. Like my screen time is through the roof. I'm watching the news more than ever. I'm always looking for the thing because I always think I'm gonna like pick up my phone after the sermon, turn it back on and be like, they found the cure. You know, like I always think that's gonna happen. And then I find myself just consuming things. Like my weakness, I don't know what yours is late at night. Mine's popcorn, okay? Like I make a bag of popcorn and I put it in between my wife and I so that it's like we're sharing it. She doesn't even touch it, all right? Like that's what I do. I just eat things. Like I'm just constantly, constantly snacking throughout this. So here's the question we're asking tonight. Like the question we're asking is when the world begins to fall apart, what do we do? And I'd love to have an answer that's like, I get my priorities straight, I call the people I love most. I'd love to be able to say, like, here's what we did. The world was falling apart, and we, made our, we pulled our lives together into something beautiful. But that's not actually the answer. You want to know the answer to what do we do when the world starts to fall apart? It's three words. Three words. We consume things. That's what we did. In the last five months, Americans have just consumed things. The answer to how do we deal with a global pandemic and a crashing economy and chaos and civil unrest everywhere in the world is simple. We consume things. 
And I've been thinking about this constantly. Like I've just been constantly thinking about the fact that in my own life and probably in your life as well, the consumption rate throughout this pandemic has just shot through the roof, which tells me when things start to fall apart, what we don't do is turn to our God or turn to each other or turn into ourselves to our deepest held values and belief. We take things in. We consume things. And so here's what I want to talk to you tonight in, in the midst of this kind of rhythm and ruin series. We, we laid out at the beginning, like there are rules to your life that determine whether your life will be lived in rhythm or in ruin. Here's rule number three tonight. You must decide how you will consume the world or the world will consume you. You must decide how will I consume the world? How will I consume things? Or you will become consumed by the world. Uh, I want to talk about consuming tonight. I want to talk about the things we take in tonight. Uh, I want to talk about these things in our life that we just absorb constantly, sometimes without thinking. Uh, I want to talk about it in such a way that bothers everyone who's here tonight. I, I really do. I want to talk about it in a way that convicts you that there might be things in your life that no one would ever call sin, but it is consuming you. It is eating you alive. It is controlling you. It is owning you. It is destroying you. And you didn't even see it coming. Here's the scripture that we're going to look at tonight. First Corinthians chapter six. This is such a powerful scripture in, in the New Testament. It begins in this verse 12. This is Paul speaking. He says, I have the right to do anything you say. So let me give you the context to this. Paul has preached the good news of Jesus, the gospel, to this church in Corinth. And apparently what happened is they received the gospel, the good news of Jesus, and they started coming up with their own sayings, their own phrases. You'll see here in the NIV, it's put in quotation, I have the right to do anything, Paul says, meaning he's quoting them. Now here's what's so interesting about this, that there's like this sliver of truth in what they figured out. Because here's the gospel that Paul pro proclaimed to the Corinthians. And if you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, or if you're listening online tonight, and you're not even sure you want anything to do with Jesus, I want you to know that the good news that, that Paul proclaims to the Corinthians here is the basic fact of the Christian faith. And that is that Jesus Christ died on the cross and rose again for your salvation so that your sins would be fully forgiven. You have nothing to do with it. You receive it. It's a gift. It's given to you by God. You don't earn it. You don't deserve it. And you can't lose it because of your bad behavior. Like someone needs to hear that again. You cannot lose your salvation because of your bad behavior. This is the gospel that God gives you this gift and says, you don't have to earn it. You don't have to make your way up. You don't have to give it back to me. You don't have to pay me back. And here's what I need you to know. That anytime the gospel is proclaimed in all of its boldness, there are going to be people who misunderstand it. In fact, I think if you're proclaiming the gospel clearly, you should have people who go, wait a second. So you're saying God saves me and I don't even have to behave myself to earn it? And the answer to that is yes. That's how God saves you. Like the radical good news of the gospel isn't God kind of saves you by his grace. He entirely saves you by his grace. Now, I believe that it's going to result in a changed life, but here's what the Corinthians misunderstood. They understood that God saved them. And so in some ways, like it, whatever they did or didn't do, God has already rescued, already redeemed, already saved them. That is a moment. It happens. God makes you born again. But here's what the Corinthians started doing. They started saying, listen, um, if God's already saved me, then I have the right to do anything. I'll be fine. I'll be totally good. And here's what Paul's going to respond with. Paul's going to tell them, listen, you have the right to do anything he's going to say, but I want you to see how Paul responds in the next half of the verse. He says in verse 12, but not everything is beneficial. Like in other words, yes, Jesus saves you by his grace, not by your works. You didn't earn it. You don't deserve it. But he goes, listen to me, not everything you're going to do is beneficial. Like just because God saved you doesn't mean you can do anything and live the life that is actually beneficial to you. And so here's what I want us to start to consider tonight. I want us to start to consider if you are here and you're a Christian, 
that you've received God's goodness, you've received his goodness, his forgiveness, his grace, his mercy upon your life, and he has saved you. I need you to understand this. There is nothing you can do to lose God's salvation. No thing, no amount of sin, no amount of fallenness, no amount of shame. God has saved you permanently. But there are things you can do that can ruin your life. There are things you can do that can rob you of your joy. I've always said this. Sin does not rob you of your salvation. Sin robs you of your joy. And there are things you can do that will rob you of your joy. And the way Paul puts it here is there are things that you can do that are not beneficial to you. And so here's what I want to talk to you. Here's how I want to frame that tonight. I want us as a people to be a people who are aware of this, that we need to learn to limit our consumption only to that which is actually beneficial. Things that are actually beneficial to us. I want us to be people who consume things that are actually beneficial. Now, now tonight, maybe this night you're going, okay, so I'm only supposed to consume things, whether it's food or alcohol or media or whatever else we're talking about tonight. I'm only supposed to consume things that are beneficial for me. But here's the problem with me saying that. The problem with me saying that is you have developed a skill Remember Liam Neeson in Taken? He's like, I have a set of skills, right? That I've developed over a very long career. You have a set of skills that you have developed over a very long life of however many years you've lived. And here's the skill. I I love to put it this way. That you have developed the skill. You are an expert at justifying your own behavior. You are so good at justifying your own behavior. You are so good at looking at the screen report that comes in about how many minutes or hours per day you spent on your phone and giving yourself all of the reasons why it's not that big of a deal. Like you look at it, you're like six hours a day. That's like a quarter of my life. But it's different because, and then you give some reason, right? Or or I talk about snacking during the pandemic. You're like, no, no, it's not snacking. It's sustenance. Like you've just come up with a reason or or you're like, yeah, you know what? I consume news nonstop and I'm constantly involved in politics that don't have anything to actually do with my life. But it's important because one time I got in an argument with my uncle and I won. You know, like you've justified yourself. You are an expert at justifying your own behavior. You're, You're actually really good at seeing how consumption destroys people around you, but you are actually an expert at justifying yourself. You're blind to it. So here's the question I actually want you to ask. When it comes to consumption of food, of alcohol, of news, uh, of digital things, when it comes to you spending money and just buying new things, here's the question I want you to ask. Here's the way I want you to frame it. It's this. Would I recommend that my best friend do what I'm doing right now? Let me ask that again. Would I recommend that my best friend do what I am doing right now? Like, let me put it to you in a few different ways. If you knew that your best friend, some, some of you, um, when it comes to consuming news, let's talk about that, news and politics, right? Some of you are just like obsessed with it. And so you wake up in the morning and the first thing you do is you look at your phone and you look at the news and you go like, did they find a cure? No, okay, who can I blame today? Like, and then you're mad. And then you're looking at the news and you're reading whatever your favorite site is. And usually it's not like a fair and balanced diet. It's like hardcore right wing or hardcore left wing. And you're zen. And then all day you're flipping through Twitter and just seeing like, who am I supposed to be outraged with today? And you're constantly looking at the news and you can tell me all of the little political spats that have happened in the last two weeks. And you're just constantly obsessed with that. Here's what can happen. Um, It's really easy to justify that in yourself. But if you knew you had your best friend who was just constantly obsessing about the news, constantly obsessing about politics, when they woke up in the morning, right before they went to bed, everything they ever did was just consuming, consuming, consuming politics as if it was the thing they needed in the bread of their life. You would be concerned for them, right? Like you'd be worried about them. Or let's take a different subject. 
Can we talk about alcohol for a second? Like, would you want your best friend consuming alcohol at the rate you consume alcohol? Uh, again, I think for some of you, this is just a non-issue. Like, alcohol is just, it has no power over your life. But I just wonder if for some of you, if your best friend told you that they consumed alcohol at the rate you consume alcohol, you'd be concerned. That if your best friend told you they drank seven out of the last seven days, you might be concerned. If your best friend told you that sometimes they drink alone in their room so their roommates don't see how much they're drinking because they're drinking late at night, you'd be concerned. So see, this is the question. Would you be okay if your best friend, the person you cared about most deeply in this world, was doing it? When it comes to shopping and buying things, sometimes you can justify purchases and say, I totally need these new shoes, or I needed a new iPhone because my old one was broken and it wasn't really broken, but you've justified it. But if your best friend was always buying something new, that she couldn't afford or he didn't actually have the money for, if your best friend was always buying to this rate where he just got out of control, would you be concerned? See, Paul's concern here is not whether things are good or bad. There's good or bad in the scripture, okay? There's sin and there's not sin. But, but then there's this level of doing things where you are doing things that are not beneficial. And in fact, he's gonna escalate it here. Let me show you how he escalates it. He, has the, he says, I have the right to do anything. But then he uses this phrase, seven words. But I will not be mastered. By anything. In fact, I would just ask some of you to memorize these seven words. I will not be mastered by anything. I won't be. I will not allow myself to be mastered by anything. I will not allow anything else to rule and reign and have a grip over my life. It will not happen. Now, now listen, as Christians, it's really easy initially to think this is talking about sin. So I don't want to be mastered by sexual sin. I don't want to be mastered by anger. I don't want to be controlled by comparison. I don't want to be controlled by pride or greed or any of these things. And that's one way to look at this. And I think it's a significant thing. But, but I think Paul is actually going to push us to a deeper level here. I think what Paul is going to try to talk to us about is we don't, it's not just sin we don't want to master us. It's I won't be mastered by anything. I'm not going to allow anything to have control over my life. And I want to talk to you tonight about some of the things we consume that start to have control over our lives. And this is where I'm going to speak to all of you. And I suspect as I talk about some of these things, um, there are some of you that will go, that's just not an issue for me. And you can actually, with a clean conscience, go, that is not an all an issue. Praise God. But, but perhaps one of these things, you would actually look at your life and go, this has control right now. This is owning me. This is controlling me. This is mastering me. So I want to talk to you about six things tonight. The six things I want to talk to you tonight are food, news, shopping, alcohol, social media, and dating. I want to talk to you about those six things tonight. I want to talk to you about how those things can come in control of your life. I want to talk to you about how those things can begin to master you. Paul says these words, I will not be mastered by anything. Let's talk about the first one. Let's talk about food. The most obvious place that we see food taking control of people's lives is when we identify an eating disorder in someone's life. And, and I'm not naive enough to believe that there are not many people here who have either struggled with an eating disorder, are currently struggling with an eating disorder, or even worse, are struggling with an eating disorder and can't even come to admit it. I believe there are people here tonight. But I want to be super clear about something. If you think the only people who can be mastered by food are people who are struggling with an eating disorder, you are blind to the power food might have in your life. But like the people who are mastered by food aren't just skinny people or aren't just people who feel overweight. It's not those people. Anyone can be mastered by food, no matter what your size is, no matter what your history is, no matter what your medical condition is, food can easily take over in your life. And here's one of the things I hope you've realized 
And if you've gotten to this point in your adult life and you have not sincerely wrestled with this, I need you to begin this now. We all grow up as kids thinking, I eat when I'm hungry and that's why I eat. And I hope at this point in your adult life you realize that that is not the case. It's not. There are all kinds of things in your life where food can take control that has nothing to do with you being hungry or not hungry. But like for some of you, you eat to numb the pain in your life. So rather than deal with the pain that's going on inside, you eat. But for some of you, you eat to deal with stress. And so it's been worse during the pandemic because you're at home and you're working and you eat to deal with stress rather than deal with it in a different kind of way. You eat not because you want to eat because you, because you want to make your mom happy when she puts something in front of you. You eat because every time you sit down in front of the TV, you've linked television and you've linked food. You eat because you want to be in with other people on the special diet they're doing. Whatever that diet is, whatever that lifestyle, is you eat because of that. Here's what I want you to be aware of. I want you to be aware that food can take over your life, even if it's not an eating disorder. I want you to be aware that food can take over your life anytime you don't realize that you're using food to accomplish something that food can never accomplish. Paul says, I will not be mastered by anything. And for some of you, you need to come to grips with the fact that food has actually taken a place in your life that it was never meant to take. Food has taken a role in your life that it can never possibly satisfy you. It can never possibly accomplish what you want. So let's talk about food that is not going to, I'm not going to be mastered by anything. Let's talk about news. Consuming the news, talking about politics, thinking about the things of the day. Is that healthy? Is it good to be aware of the news? Of course it is. But I want to speak to someone here who is mastered by it. I want to talk to someone here who has during the sermon already looked at their phone and seen some news update or looked at some Twitter thing or saw the latest thing that Trump said or Biden said or that the Senate did or the House did or what's going on here. There is a way of doing politics. There is a way of being informed in the world where you are controlled by it. And so you go to bed at night and you look at the news and you see what's happening in some city you've never been to and you never will go to and you've never heard about before this. And now your whole emotional reality is wrapped around what's going on in some city council that you've never heard of before. And I want you to know that if you are not careful, the news and politics can start to master you. It can start to dictate your emotion and your behavior and how you see other people. If you cannot talk to someone because you found out they're a Republican or you found out they were a Democrat, if you can't talk to someone because you found out who they voted for and you didn't like that choice, you are being mastered by politics. You are being owned by the news. I'm going to say this as often as I can here. You need to be aware that the news does not exist to inform you. It doesn't. And if you are under the impression that the news is just out there offering information just plainly to you, you have missed the power that news and politics can have over your life. Paul says, I will not be mastered by anything. Let's talk about shopping. Shopping is this wonderful thing that we do and we can always justify it because I needed new shoes. And sometimes it's not even I needed new shoes. It's the shoes were on sale and I was going to buy them at some point anyway. So of course I bought them now and it's a savings. My wife loves to say this to me. It was a savings. And I'm like, it's not a savings when you spend money. But she's like, no, it's a savings. And I'm like, it's not a savings. This is the constant debate. But here's what you need to know. Sometimes you shop because you need stuff. And sometimes you shop because you think if you get some new thing, it'll fill that little hole in your heart. See, there's actually a difference. Um, people say that Americans are materialists, and I don't actually believe that's true. Materialism says, if I have a lot of things, it'll make me happy. But that's not what I believe Americans are. Americans aren't materialists. We're not materialists. We're consumerists. See, materialism says, if I have a bunch of things, I'll be happy. But consumerism says something different. Consumerism says, if I get that new thing, I'll be happy. 
That's what consumerism is. Consumerism is if I get those new shoes, I'll be happy. If I get that new shirt, I'll look good, and then I'll finally feel good about myself and my body because I haven't really felt good about my body. But if I get that shirt, it'll change my entire reality. Consumerism says if I get that new iPhone, that's just basically the old iPhone, except like tiny little bit different and a little bit bigger, and it doesn't have a home button, like that will change my entire existence, and I will now have control over my life. See, this is what spending does. This is what buying does. It can own you. It can master you. You can get to this place where suddenly you're buying things that you don't even need. You're buying things rather than actually asking to borrow things. You're buying things rather than actually dealing with the things going on in your heart, thinking if I just get that thing, it'll fill that hole in my heart. And Paul says I won't be mastered by anything. Let's talk about alcohol. Again, I think there are some people here who struggle with alcohol. My, my position, just to be extraordinarily clear based on the Bible, is that alcohol drinking is not in and of itself sinful. I think if you're under 21, it is incredibly foolish for you to drink. It is against the law. It is foolish. I do not recommend it. I would urge you against it. If you are over 21, I would urge you against being naive enough to think alcohol couldn't take over your life. I would urge you to not be silly and foolish enough to think that alcoholism is for some other kind of person, but it would never affect you. I need us to be aware alcohol can take over. Listen, if you can't hang out with your friends without drinking, it's a problem. If you can't watch a ball game without drinking, it's a problem. If I told you go a week without drinking and you thought that was too much of a burden to bear, it's a problem. It's a problem. It's a problem. And I think what can so often happen is alcoholic can be put in some other category. Like that's not a real human like me, but the real truth is alcoholics are just people like us who have stumbled into something that has begun to master them. And I want to talk to you about that. I want you to think about this tonight. Paul says, I will not be mastered by anything. I will not be the type of person who can't laugh or have fun without alcohol. I will not be that kind of person. Talk about food, talk about news, shopping, alcohol. Let's talk about social media. Um, we should all be aware of how often social media serves just to numb um, either boredom or pain or stress or anxiety. I, I found myself doing this and I'll just confess this. Sometimes I'm writing a sermon and I get to something and I'm not really sure how to piece this together and it's really hard and my brain feels like it's cooked so I pick up my phone. It's like a little hit of dopamine, right? Like, oh, here's a little thing. Oh, here's someone's, oh, here's what they're doing. Like, I don't know. And it gets my mind off and it feels so good for the moment. But here's what that is. That's me running to social media when I could be running to God. That's me running to social media when I could be resting in prayer. That's me running to social media to fill something inside of me. Like, do you know how weird it is that you, some of, I'm just going to speak for all of us as if it's all of us, but you know, you can pretend it's not you, but it is. Like, you know how weird it is that you won't go to the bathroom without your phone? You know how weird that is? Like, you know, we, like, it's like a, you're like heading to the bathroom, like, oh, wait. And then you go grab it. Why? Because heaven forbid you have to sit for like three minutes without your phone. Like heaven forbid you'd actually have to just sit in silence and be there. And Paul says, I'm not going to be mastered by anything. Do you know what I think has happened to some of us? This is our master. It is. And I think some of us need to come to grips with the fact that this or social media or Twitter or Instagram or whatever that thing is has become our master. We're just constantly on it all the time, constantly, constantly, constantly it owns us. Everything that's going on there, we're constantly thinking about it rather than thinking about the people who are in front of us. We're sitting at dinner, at an outdoor table, of course, and we're sitting there at dinner and everyone's talking, but we're on our phone and we're flipping through wondering what everyone else in the world is doing. It's mastered us. And here's the final one. I want to talk about dating. I want to talk about you being with a guy or being with a girl. So I think there's some of you that just kind of have a healthy pattern of dating. You're interested in someone, you date them, and it works out or it doesn't, and that's okay. But I think there's some of you who are more terrified of being alone than with being with the wrong person. 
So you jump from person to person to person to person and you consume men, you consume women because you would rather be in a bad relationship than not be in one at all. And it owns you. Dating owns you. Being in a relationship completely owns your life because you're so terrified of being alone. And so you just keep giving in to a terrible guy who's using you and abusing you. You keep going for women that you should not be with, that are not leading you down the right path because you're terrified of coming to grips with the fact that you have stuff inside of you you need to deal with. It can own you. It can master you. And here's what Paul says. I will not be mastered by anything. Anything. Not just sinful bad things, but even good things. And tonight when I talk about consuming things, when I talk about the things in this world, we just breathe in without even thinking. I want you to be aware that there are probably things in your life that are owning you and you haven't even acknowledged it. Maybe it's not on my list right here, but I need you to be aware that there are things in this life, good things, that if you're not careful, can take over. Here's how Paul goes on here. He says in verse 13, he says, food for the stomach. This is a phrase that the Corinthians use. Food for the stomach and stomach for the food and God will destroy them both. That's kind of a weird phrase, right? You're like, I, I, I've never heard anyone say that. And it's like, okay, this is a weird phrase, but here's what you have heard people say. Like, like you're basically just an animal with urges. So, so maybe you've heard, so like, when I'm hungry, I should sleep. When I'm thirsty, I'll drink things. When I'm tired, I'll sleep. When I'm horny, I'll have sex. When I'm hurting, I'll drink alcohol. When I'm unhappy, I'll buy something. When I'm bored, I'll look at my phone. And when I'm lonely, I'll find a guy. See, here's what happens really, really quickly. What happens really, really quickly is you can start to believe that every urge and impulse that happens with inside of you is something you should act on. That's what the Corinthians are saying here. Food for the stomach. Like, uh, I have a stomach. It's hungry. There's food. Bing. Like, that's how they think. That's how they think things work. And here's what's so wild about this. What the ancient Corinthians thought, where they're like, I have a food, I'll eat, there's food, I'll put it in my stomach. I need sleep, I'll sleep. Like every impulse and urge I have, I'll act upon. Here's what's wild. This is not at all different than like the modern secular version of how you should live your life, right? Like here's the modern secular vision of what a human being is. You are nothing more than an animal controlled by biological functions. This, this is like what the actual view is, that there's nothing spiritual about you. There's nothing powerful about you. You are a product of evolution that has come here to this point. You are driven by your urges. Everything you do is driven by biological urges, and there is nothing more to you than that. And here's what I want you to know. This isn't like a dig at atheists. This is what atheists, secular, progressive people have said. Like these people who say there, there is nothing more to you than your body. Hey, there's this crazy story. There's a guy named Christopher Hitchens. And if you know who Christopher Hitchens is, he's a very famous atheist. He's now dead. Um, and he has passed away. He, he passed away of a really horrible, horrible disease. But he was very famous. He was one of what they called the four horsemen of the new atheists. And he was very um, stridently anti-Christian and stridently anti-theist and stridently anti-anyone who believes in God. And he went through a horrible, horrible, horrible um, bout of cancer. And it took his life, and it was really tragic and really terrible how it went down, but he kind of documented the whole journey. And he had this interesting part he was documenting uh, in one of his books, and here's what he said. He said the doctors would be working with him, and he started to get really frustrated and angry with the doctors who were working with him. Because here's what the doctors would say. They, they would say, Mr. Hitchens, um, your body is rejecting the medicine we gave you. Or they say, Mr. Hitchens, um, what's happening here is that your body's organs, or that your body, it's just shutting down on you. So that's what's happening. Your body is shutting down. Or they say, Mr. Hitchens, your body is feeling weak right now. And eventually, Christopher Hitchens snaps at the doctors and he gets angry at them. And here's what he says to them Stop talking about my body. He says, I don't have a body, I am a body. That's what he said. 
I don't have a body. I am a body. And this is the view of the modern atheist. This is the view of the ancient Corinthians. I don't have a body. I am a body. And so whatever my body wants, I'm going to give it. If my body wants sex, I'll get it sex. If it wants sleep, I'll get it sleep. If it wants to look at something, I'll look at it. Whatever it wants, I will give it. This is what Christopher Hitchens says. And how remarkable that this is exactly what the Corinthians were saying 2,000 years ago. But like, let me put it to you this way. The ancient Corinthians and the new atheists say the same thing. I don't have a body. I am a body. And so whatever my body wants, I'm going to give to it. But here's what the Bible says. And here's what the Christian worldview says. It says, I have a, I have a body, a mind, and a soul, and have the capacity to choose. This is what the Christian worldview is. The Christian worldview is not whatever urges you have biologically, just give in to them or whatever you feel is the right thing or you wouldn't feel that thing if it's not real. No, the Christian worldview is the things you feel in your body are just one element of who you are. You have a soul, you have a mind, you have a spirit, you have a body and these intricately work together in such a way that you can actually choose. So that sometimes when you have an impulse to look at your phone, to drink alcohol, to have sex with that guy, to watch TV again, to consume more news, to buy something online. Because you are not just a body, because you are not just a set of biological functions and urges, you have the capacity to say a word that is absolutely stunning. You have the capacity to say a word that could change your entire life. It is a one word sentence. It is a complete sentence. And in order to say this word, all you have to do is push your tongue up against the roof of your mouth, hum a little bit and push breath out. No, no. You have the capacity to say no to things. You don't have to say yes to every impulse you have. In fact, to be a Christian, to be a full human being, to be someone who is following after Jesus is the capacity to say, it's not that I'm gonna lose my salvation, it's just that I believe I have the capacity to say no. Because if I say yes to every urge that's inside of me, it will destroy me. It will lead my life from rhythm into ruin. And so you say no. This is what you have the capacity to do. And you might not believe this, but actually throughout the entire history of the Christian faith and even before the Christian faith in the Old Testament scriptures, there was a pattern, there was a practice, there was a thing people did to say no. And it was a way they built saying no into their lives because in the ancient world, even more than now, people were kind of like, yeah, well, I'm just a body, I just gotta do whatever. But there's this spiritual practice of saying no and that spiritual practice of saying no is called fasting, fasting. See, fasting is this decision to periodically stop consuming. That's what fasting is. Fasting is this biblical idea that from time to time, I'm going to make the decision to stop consuming things. And with a few minutes we have left here tonight, here's simply what I want to do. I want to address the fact that consumption, if you're not careful about it, will consume you. If you're not careful about stopping consuming things from time to time, whatever that good thing is that's in your life will ultimately consume you and destroy you. And so fasting is the capacity to just say no. It's not to say no for forever. That's why it says periodically, right? Like fasting isn't a forever thing. Fasting is I'm never going to eat food again. I'm never going to look at my phone again. I'm never going to drink alcohol again. That's not what this is. Fasting is the capacity to choose for a period of time to say no so that you can develop the muscle that says, I'm not just a body who will give in to everything. I'm not going to be mastered by anything. I'm not going to be controlled. I'm only going to do things that are beneficial toward my flourishing in Jesus. So here's what I want to do tonight. I want to lay out six different challenges, six different fasting challenges. And here's what I suspect. 
I suspect that someone here tonight needs to pick one of these up. I don't think you need to pick all six up, okay? I'm just gonna say that from the front. If you try to do all six, that'd be wild. Um, but I don't think that's gonna be you tonight. But I suspect that for almost everyone here, there's at least one that you might consider. For almost everyone here, there's one that you might say, you know what, I might need to think about that. And I might need to actually put that into motion because this good thing that I've been consuming in my life is starting to consume me. And I'm not even allowed to say that out loud. I'm not even ready to say that out loud. I think if I said that out loud, I'd sound crazy. But perhaps for some of you, you need to hear this. So here's, here we go. Six different fasting challenges for someone here. Uh, number one, stop eating food for one day. One day. This is what fasting is biblically. At some point, we'll do a whole series on fasting because I think it's so powerful and profound. Fasting at its core, biblically, is you stop eating food for a, per, for a particular amount of time. It's not forever. It's not, I'll never eat food again. By the way, this isn't like intermittent fasting. This isn't like great way for weight loss. Like this has nothing to do with weight loss. Okay, this has nothing to do with you being physically in shape. This has everything to do with you doing a reset on food to say, wait, 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 why is it I eat food? Because you fast for a day and you realize that you go to the kitchen, not even because you're hungry, just because that's your pattern. You just always go to the kitchen. You, you fast for a day because you sit down to watch TV and then you go, I need my popcorn. Just kidding, I'm fasting, right? That's why you fast. Part of fasting allows you to reset and try to understand what role and space food has in your life. Part of fasting is to heal that relationship with food. Now, listen to me so clearly. This is not a weight loss strategy. This is not you saying, I'm going to fast, and because I don't eat food, then suddenly my whole thing, like, this is not how this works. And if you're in the midst of, like, recovery from an eating disorder, I want you to talk to someone wise, a doctor, a physician, before you do this. If you are pregnant, if you think you might be pregnant, if you have some medical condition, I'm not asking you to destroy your body here. But I think for some of you, you need to reassess your relationship with food because it has actually started to master you, and fasting for one day might be the answer. Fast for one day from food. You know what I love to do? A 24-hour fast would just be you eat dinner um, on Thursday night, and you don't eat again until Friday night. The, the most comfortable fast for me I've actually found is to not eat dinner one night, go the whole next day without fasting, and then eat breakfast the next day, a 36-hour fast. Uh, I found that it's just powerful in my spirit, my heart, my mind. Uh, your body is completely able to do it. Don't buy into the myth. Like, if you don't eat for a day, you'll just die. Like, that's not true. Fast for one day. Here's the second challenge. Stop consuming the news for one week. One week. Listen to me, I promise if we find the cure to COVID, you'll find out anyway, okay? Like you'll find out, stop, delete the news apps, don't turn on your TV, whatever it is you get news from, maybe you have to go away from social media, just one week, I'm not gonna listen to the news, watch what happens to your heart. I'm not gonna dive into politics for one week. Don't worry, you'll come back, the presidential election will still be terrible and we'll be back here, right? One week. I'm not going to watch the news. I'm not going to consume news. I'm not going to read the news. I'm not going to look for the news. If I see the news on TV, I'll go away from me, right? I'm literally talking about fasting for one week from the news. See what happens to your spirit. See what happens to the way you treat people. See what happens to the way you're stressed out. I bet you for some of you, you, you fast for news for one week and you actually find you're less stressed out and you're not sure why. And that's because you've always been stressing about all these things that don't actually impact you. Stop, stop, stop watching the news for one week. Here's the next one. Stop buying anything for two weeks. A two-week spending freeze. I will not buy anything. I will not spend money on anything. You probably have to fill your car up with gas before, right? But I'm not going to buy anything. I'm not going to buy food. I'm not going to buy clothes. I'm not going to buy anything. I am not going to buy anything for two weeks. Watch what happens. And then you'll notice how often you go on Amazon just to look for things, not because you actually need them, but because you want to fill that hole in your heart. 
You'll realize how much you actually buy shoes, not because you actually want the new shoes, but because you want a new you, but you're not prepared to say that out loud yet. Am I getting personal here? Like, like, like that's what happens. You stop buying anything for two weeks. You just decide, hey, for these two weeks, I'm not buying anything. And someone says, hey, why don't you come out to dinner with me? You're like, that's cool, but I'm just going to drink water. Why don't you come over to my house? That's great. And you start like rooting through the pantry because you're like, I haven't bought food. You're like, this is what you do. You just decide I'm not going to spend. You actually put the brakes on it so that you can figure out what place spending has in your life. Here's the next one. Stop drinking alcohol for one month. September's coming up. I want to challenge some of you to do a sober September. You're just not going to drink at all. You're not going to touch it. You're not going to drink. It's just not going to be a thing. You're not even going to make a big deal of it. You're not promising to never drink again. You're not promising that alcohol is bad. You're not promising that come October 1st, you're not going to have a drink. You're just saying in September, I'm not going to drink. I'm just going to take a one-month reset on this. I'm going to take a one-month reset where I decide I'm not going to touch alcohol, not because alcohol is bad and I can never have alcohol, but because you're just going to give yourself a break. Then you're going to find out what happens to your body, what happens to your mind, what happens to your friendships. You're going to find out if you and your friends actually really had fun or you were just kind of drunk and that's what made you friends. Oh yeah, that got, that got personal. But that's what I'm talking about. This is what fasting does. It resets it. It tears away the veneer. It allows us to see who we actually are. It allows us to see what actually controls us. Here's the next one. It's a six-month challenge. You ready for it? Stop using social media for six months. Six months, yeah. You're like, six months? September, October, November, December, January, February. Like, you'll get back on social media, and Lord willing, COVID will be behind us. You know? Like, that, that's what would happen. And maybe some of you need to do that. Like, I would say, like, swipe to your little screen time thing, and if it's like four or five hours a day on social media, I think you're like a prime candidate for this. If it's three hours a day. If it's three hours a day, an eighth of your life is going to social media. If it's four hours a day, a quarter of your waking hours are on social media, okay? And it might be worth you taking a break for six months. I promise you won't miss anything important. If someone gets engaged, you'll find out. <laughs> if something big happens, you'll know. Like to take a break. And then here's the final one I want to give you. It's a one-year challenge. Stop pursuing a relationship for one year. Maybe I could put it this way. Don't date anyone for one year. Just a one-year pause. Like you've been on the court and you're just going to sit on the bench for one year. It's not that you're never going to get married. It's not that you're never going to be interested in a guy again. You're just for one year, I'm not going to be in on this. <laughs> There's like some upset murmuring. Okay, one year. And, and here's the thing. I think for some of you, this doesn't apply. But ladies, if I can just speak to you, I think for some of you, you might have just bounced from relationship to relationship to relationship to relationship, and you take a one-year break. And here's what's going to happen if you take that one-year break. I'm just telling you, like two months in, you're going to meet the guy. And you're like, all right, I know I was taking a break, but, but. And, and, and here's the deal. This is between you and God. Like, you deal with that. Like, you don't owe me anything. You don't owe us anything. But I think for some of you, taking a break for a year would be the best thing possible for your soul. I think fasting from it to recognize what role guys or what role girls have played in your life would be one of the most amazing things. Because here's what Paul says, these seven words. I will not be mastered by anything. By anything. I'm not going to be mastered by any of these things. These aren't bad things I'm describing here tonight. These are good things that if you don't decide how you're going to consume them, they will consume you. And so here's what I want you to do. I want you to look into fasting. I want you to consider it. Whether it's food, whether it's alcohol, whether it's news, whether it's social media, uh, whether it is um, uh, dating someone, whatever that is, to fast from that thing. And here's what I want you to do as you go into fasting. I want you to go into fasting and realize this, that you get the most out of fasting when you embrace the mystery. Um, when, when I grew up, people always talked about fasting. And here's how they always talked about fasting. And this is what I remember so much. Maybe some of you heard it this way. Fasting is great. And they were talking about food. They're like, it's so great because you fast for the day. And then at lunchtime, instead of eating lunch, you read your Bible. And I was like, 
okay, that sounds good. Like, that's probably a good strategy if you fast. But then here's what I realized. Basically, all they thought fasting was good for was time management skills, right? Like, you probably don't have enough time to read your Bible. So if you clear lunch off your schedule, you'll have time. And it's like, that's not what fasting is. There's a mystery to it. You want to know what the mystery to fasting is? It's that Jesus Christ himself thought he couldn't accomplish his mission without fasting. You ever thought about that? Like Jesus, God incarnate, God in human flesh decides I'm going to come. And he's like, uh, I need to fast. And so if Jesus needs to fast, why in the world would you think you can go through this life and not fast? If Jesus decided he needed to tap the brakes on food so that he could have intimacy with his father, why would you think that is not something necessary for your life? And so that's the challenge to you. Listen, I don't have like, if you fast, here's the four things that will happen. I just know you enter into a mystery where you are living and loving like Jesus. And somehow through that fasting, God does something that I can't even fully explain. I can't fully explain what God does. And that's the beauty of fasting. It's a mystery. And it's a mystery you step into. And it's a mystery you don't step into alone because we watch Jesus do it first. And if Jesus is going to do it, and our call here is to live in love like him, we're going to do that too. We're going to step into fasting. So here's a three-word phrase I've always just tried to articulate to you. Our band's going to come up as we close in worship right now. But here's the three-word phrase I want you to remember when it comes to fasting. If you're not sure you want to fast, if you're like, well, I don't understand why fasting's a big deal. I don't understand why you're asking me to fast. I don't get what the benefits are. I don't get what the, the result is going to be. Here's what I've always believed about what it means for us to follow Jesus. Three words. Obedience precedes understanding. Obedience precedes understanding, meaning obedience comes first, then you understand. And I think for so many followers of Jesus, what we want is to understand and then obey Jesus. But here's what following Jesus is. Following Jesus is, God, I'm going to obey. I don't get it. I don't understand it. I don't even know if I like your commands, but I'm going to obey. And through obedience, you find understanding because obedience precedes, comes before understanding. I want to invite some of you to fast. I want to invite some of you to deal with the thing that's consuming you. I'm willing to bet that for some of you, um, there is something that's consuming you and you don't even have the courage to say it out loud tonight. I wonder if for some of you, this little prayer wall we have over here, maybe you just need to write down tonight for the first time because you can't even have the courage to say it out loud right now, but you have the courage to write down, I'm struggling with alcohol and I need to stop. Food has taken over my life. I'm dating guys because I'm not willing to face the pain that I have inside of me. I look at my phone so much because I don't want to deal with my anxiety. For some of you, maybe tonight you need to come to this prayer wall and get before a holy God who says my arms are open wide for you because there's nothing you did to earn your salvation. There's nothing you can do to lose it. And God wants to welcome you into that. And God wants to welcome you into the fullness of joy where you are able to not be mastered by anything except Jesus Christ himself. And he is a good master. He is a good Lord. He will take care of you. He will love you. He will welcome you in with open arms. So that's my challenge for someone tonight. Take it seriously. You'll be glad you did. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thanks for tonight. Thanks for your word. God, I so resonate with the apostle Paul who says, I just don't wanna be mastered by anything. I don't want to be controlled by anything. I don't want anything in this world to own me. So God, help us find the little things in our heart that own us, control us, shape us, destroy us. God, take it away from us. God, all I'm praying for tonight for these men and women is courage to say what's actually true. Courage to admit to themselves what's actually going on in their lives. Maybe even courage to say it to someone else. So God, I pray in this worship tonight, you'd meet us. Meet us in your grace, meet us in your power. Help us to be bonded to you and you only, Christ alone. We pray it in his name. And all God's people said, amen. amen.